KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Some county vaccination sites are now walk-in, no appointment needed. But there's sort of a catch. There's a limited number of daily shots that are available. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego eliminates the use of gang injunctions. There are certainly racist motives behind these gang injunctions. How the State Citizens Redistricting Committee creates new congressional districts. And we'll hear new music from the Mexicali band Silent. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. People who've been struggling with the web to get a vaccination appointment now have a new option. You can just walk up to a site and get in line. San Diego County is now offering walk-up no-appointment vaccinations at some county vaccination sites. This does not yet apply to private health care-sponsored vaccination sites. That news, coupled with the fact that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is being administered again in San Diego, gives a boost to the county's overall vaccination picture. And joining me is KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Hey, Maureen. Great to be here. So, uh, refreshing over and over again for that elusive vaccine appointment can now be a thing of the past. Are the county vaccination walk-up appointments as simple as they sound? Yes, um, and county officials are describing it as people can now show up at a county-hosted clinic and get vaccinated without an appointment, but there's sort of a catch. There's a limited number of daily shots that are available for people without appointments, and it's only limited to, they, they describe it as county-hosted sites, um, and so we're not talking about even county-sponsored sites, which include like some of those super stations, you know, Del Mar Superstation, uh, the super stations that Sharp has in La Mesa, um, down in there in the South Bay, Chula Vista, uh, those are not on the list. Uh, we're talking about 20 of these like sort of smaller pods. Uh, some people might be familiar with like the Linda Vista vaccination site um, at, at the University of San Diego, uh, the Martin Luther King uh, Community Center in National City, um, up in Oceanside, the North Coastal Live Well Center, um, and then some of these mobile vaccination pods. Also keep in mind too, if you are going to go to one of these sites, um, some of them are only on specific days, like Tuesday through Thursday or Tuesday and Wednesday. So make sure you check before you go and show up. And people can still get appointments at all county sites if they want to, right? 
Right. Correct. Yeah. They're, they are still offering appointments. This is just sort of like an added bonus. Um, but keep in mind, there is a limited number of doses. What about lines and wait times for people who just show up? Do we have any idea what those will be? Um, we we don't have any idea what those will be. I mean, it was so, sort of vary by sites and sort of vary by, you know, what the demand is, which we know has been incredibly high. Um, just recently, they hosted a one-day vaccination event um, over at Southwestern College that I was at, um, and they were having to turn people away. Um, they had about 400 doses there, um, and, and they said that that was encouraging. It's good that the demand for vaccines is still high. What's interesting is when we're going to see that plateau, right, once supply is going to overtake demand, which, you know, some are estimating that could be, you know, really, really soon in a week. It could be four weeks. We just really don't know. Talking about supply, uh, let's talk about the end of this pause on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. What does that add to our vaccine supply? Yeah, it's sort of described as a useful tool in the toolkit here in San Diego, you know, using it uh, to vaccinate a lot of vulnerable populations, you know, people who are unsheltered, uh, people who are out there living on the streets, uh, but also, you know, areas that are hard to reach. And actually, uh, just today talking with Cal Fire San Diego, um, they have that operation collaboration where they go to rural areas, you know, Borrego Springs, uh, out there in Fallbrook, different places. Um, Starting tomorrow, they are going to start re-administering that J&J. They were using some Moderna and Pfizer doses uh, during the J&J pause, but that meant that they had to go back to these rural areas again, you know, in three or four weeks. Uh, now they can just do one and done. Um, so definitely a lot of organizations looking forward to getting the, the versatility back that the J&J vaccine offers. Are there any groups of people who are being advised maybe not to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Not specifically. Federal regulators, they did put like a notice on like when when you go to get a vaccine, a a COVID-19 vaccination, they give you some papers that you're supposed to read. Uh, There is a notice on there uh, with with, with some more information about, you know, sort of this these rare blood clotting. Um, You know, just a few cases were uh, were reported out of, you know, more than eight million uh, of vaccinations. Um, But, you know, health officials are encouraging people if they do have questions to consult, you know, directly with their provider about, you know, what shot may be best for them. And is San Diego's case rate of new COVID infections continuing to fall? Yeah, I mean, if we if we look like, you know, at, at like what it was in October of last year, you know, around 3%. And now, you know, the 14-day rolling average of cases uh, testing positive about 1.7%. It is continuing to fall. Um, if you just look at like the last month, the daily number of cases reported can kind of fluctuate, you know, from 400 to 100 to 200 to 300. Um, and county officials, county health officials have said that that isn't as concerning now, especially with the amount of people who are being vaccinated now, you know, 50% of San Diegans who are eligible. And what's the county's vaccination goal? Yeah, so the county has a goal of getting 75% of county residents 16 and over. That's a little over 2 million people vaccinated. It used to be 70%. The state upped the ante to 75%, so the county followed suit. Um, And the county says that they're about 70% of the way to that goal in terms of first doses, about halfway there for people who are fully vaccinated. Uh, An interesting number, we're approaching a million county residents uh, that are fully vaccinated. Um, And in total, not to throw too many numbers out there at you, but um, you know, 2.8 million doses have been delivered just in San Diego County alone. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you. Thanks, Maureen.
Court orders restricting the actions of people identified as gang members are known as gang injunctions, and they've been used by prosecutors in San Diego for years. But San Diego County DA Summer Steffen announced Tuesday her office is moving to eliminate gang injunctions. Criminal justice reform advocates have urged the end of gang injunctions, saying they target black and brown young men and stigmatize those who may have left the gang years ago. Stefan says after consulting with law enforcement, she believes the injunctions do not play a significant role in maintaining public safety. And joining us is Genevieve Jones-Wright. She's a member of San Diego's Commission on Gang Prevention and Intervention. Genevieve, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Why do you think San Diego needed to get rid of gang injunctions? Well, you hit on the aspects of the injunctions that are completely unfair in your initial introduction. Um, I think that we have to use stronger language more than just outdated. I think that these gang injunctions target certain communities. There are certainly racist motives behind these gang injunctions and the neighborhoods that are subject to them. There are 22 active gang injunctions throughout our county and six in the city of San Diego. All of the injunctions are in communities where the predominant community members are black and brown. And what we see with these injunctions is that people are prohibited from doing innocent things like wearing certain jerseys, certain colors, and even numbers. And more importantly, they're restricted from being with family. And these injunctions have been on the books since the 90s, no expiration dates, So people have been subject to these injunctions for years and years, some of whom have never committed crimes, but have very innocent actions being curtailed and being a part of injunctions that outwardly tell the public that they're gang members when many are not. And we've seen the devastating effects relate to employment implications. You you touched on the subject that I wanted to speak more about, that these gang injunctions have been seen as another symptom of systematic racism in law enforcement. Can you explain why that is? Absolutely. Again, these injunctions are not a part of any communities where there would be so-called white gangs. In the county of San Diego, there is no quote unquote white gang who is included in the Cal Gang database, which tracks gangs. And so all of gang documentation primarily targets black and brown people, members of the AAPI community. We know that there are gangs in our region that are not black, brown, or Asian, and yet they're not being treated the same way. So it is as well with injunctions. When injunctions came on the scene, they were in neighborhoods in Vista, in Oceanside, and in southeastern San Diego. And so you can see where certain community members are being targeted. I remember being a young attorney before I was ever a public defender, and my first cases were dealing with these injunctions because my neighborhood was subject to an injunction. And in fact, my neighborhood was subject to the very first 
gang injunction in the city of San Diego. And that was back in 1998. What we see with these injunctions is that certain community members are prohibited from coming back to the neighborhoods where they grew up. They're prohibited from visiting their own kids, which was actually a subject matter of a case that I defended where a father was violated for visiting his toddler daughter. And this was said to be in violation of a gang injunction. And the city attorney of San Diego actually brought charges against him. And so these are the things that we see with these gang injunctions and just some of the effects, but they're absolutely detrimental. And the effects of the injunctions also serve to do things that redlining had done back when redlining was in effect de facto and also de jure. Now, yesterday on Twitter, you talked about feeling like your work on getting rid of gang injunctions was not recognized with this announcement, that officials were taking credit for this reform. Can you say more on that? Absolutely. A lot of times we hear members of law enforcement, specifically law enforcement, but other elected officials and city officials all over talk about fostering community trust. I felt that this was a betrayal of the community because for years, community members, like members of the gang commission on which I sit, community organizations like Pillars of the Community and also the Coalition on Police Accountability and Transparency have been working, trying to get an elimination of all gang injunctions. And we've been met with the same opposition from the very officials who are now touting that this is their victory. And without giving a nod to the community, it's very hard to say that you want to foster community trust when you completely erase the work of the community. Also, I believe it's a slap in the face of the community to release these press releases and have these press conferences in the manner in which they did yesterday. Not only not acknowledging community work over several years, but completely disregarding the work and not owning up to the fact that they were completely opposed to the efforts and were personal hurdles to the elimination of gang injunctions. This could have been done years ago. This should have been done years ago. And those same officials that we see touting the elimination of gang injunctions are the very same people who worked against that very effort. And I think is disingenuous. Well, two officials who have praised the decision are Mayor Todd Gloria and Councilwoman Monica Montgomery Stepp. And they, of course, Mayor Gloria has put forward the idea of of more police reforms and more prosecutorial reforms. What do you think should be next on the list of those San Diego police reforms? I believe that we need a complete ban on pretextual traffic stops where an officer can stop a driver for a minor or traffic violation and is able to investigate a separate and completely unrelated suspected criminal offense. Pretextual stops allow police officers very wide discretion in whom they choose to stop and what reasons they use to justify the traffic stop. As well, we need a ban on consent searches. Consent searches are searches that do not necessitate an officer having probable cause which is the legal standard for officers to engage in a search of a person or a person's property. With consent searches, an officer simply needs to ask 
whether they can do a search. And what we see with consent searches are that a lot of community members do not feel that they're able to say no. And so we really have coerced consent searches. But this a ban on consent searches would also cut down on racial profiling. Our law enforcement agencies across the county have got to stop being first responders as it relates to substance abuse issues, issues that relate to mental health and also homelessness. We have got to reimagine public safety and policing on a grander scale. I am happy for these small steps, but we've got to take bigger ones in order to dismantle a system that preys on Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Well, I want to thank you so much. I've been speaking with Genevieve Jones-Wright, a member of San Diego's Commission on Gang Prevention and Intervention. Genevieve, as always, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. Video and police abuse played key roles, both in the Derek Chauvin trial and in the one involving four Los Angeles police officers and Rodney King nearly three decades ago. But the outcomes were vastly different. PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols spoke with anchor Mike Haggerty about the two cases in this week's Can You Handle the Truth segment. Chris, remind us what the officers were accused of doing to Rodney King. Well, CHP officers pulled over King, who was black, for speeding on a Los Angeles freeway back in 1991, and King tried to elude officers but eventually stopped near an apartment complex. From there, four Los Angeles Police Department officers, three white, one Latino, took charge of the traffic stop, and they were captured on video kicking and beating King dozens of times after he was on the ground. The video sparked outrage across the country, but in the trial the next year, the officers were acquitted of almost all charges, including felony assault. And by contrast, this week, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was convicted on all counts, including second-degree murder in the death of George Floyd. We saw a great sense of relief among many community members after the Chauvin verdict, but that wasn't the case after the trial involving Rodney King. That's right. After the acquittals in 1992, there were five days of rioting in Los Angeles and more than 50 deaths. That included 10 people shot and killed by LAPD officers and National Guardsmen. More than 2,000 were injured. There was widespread destruction in South Los Angeles, where 
Residents set fires and destroyed grocery and liquor stores and other shops. You spoke with Sacramento State criminal justice professor Shelby Moffat about the Chauvin case and the case from 1992. What did he have to say about them? Moffat is a professor who also spent 20 years as a police officer in Sacramento. Here's what he told me about the two trials. The outcome of the Rodney King trial had a lot to do with the outcome of this trial. Let's say if you had had this trial, Derek Chauvin's trial in 1992, you might have had a similar outcome because people were not ready to uh, make the change then. In both trials, Moffat said defense attorneys tried to put the victims on trial to assassinate their character. They said very similar things that Rodney King was in his trial, that he was a black man, that he was big, that if he got up, we were scared of him. And these are the tropes that have been used for several hundred years. One of the differences in the trials was the makeup of the juries. Tell us about that. We know the jury in the Chauvin trial was more diverse. Six were white, four black, and two identify as multiracial. In 1992, the trial was moved to Simi Valley, a nearly all-white city almost 30 miles from where the beating of Rodney King took place. The court decided it might not receive a fair trial in Los Angeles due to all the publicity. That jury ended up with no black people and only two people of color. Finally, Chris, there were eventually federal charges brought against the officers for violating King's civil rights. What happened with those? Two officers were convicted on those charges and sentenced to two and a half years in prison. The other two were acquitted. And nine years ago, King, not long after releasing a memoir, tragically drowned in his own backyard pool. He was 47 years old. That was Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols speaking with anchor Mike Haggerty. California will lose a congressional seat for the first time in the state's history, and many are now wondering how districts are formed in the first place and what this means for their voice in Washington. Well, it's up to 14 people who sit on the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. They're responsible for drawing district lines. Joining us to break down this process is a member of that commission, Patricia Sinai. Patricia, welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. So first off, can you tell us how this recent loss of a congressional seat fits into the redistricting process? Sure. The information that we received was from the census. The national census released the numbers for the whole country as well as states. And we have a limited number of congressional seats, 435 congressional seats, and it's based on a population formula. And so California did increase in population, but not as fast. Its population rate was not as large as other states. And therefore, we have 52 seats out of the potential 435, which is one less than before, but we're still the largest delegation in the country. Hmm. And how does census data uh, affect or involve efforts to redistrict exactly? It is one of the most important information pieces of information that we use in addition to the input from the community. So we need three pieces of data to really draw the four maps that we will be drawing. We draw the congressional districts, 
the state Senate districts, the state assembly districts, and the Board of Equalizations. And so the reapportionment numbers that came in is the first piece, and that helps us with the congressional districts. And then we will receive in late summer, the data more at the neighborhood level, the community level. And the third piece of data we need is hearing who are our communities, what communities want to be kept together, and why it's important for them to be kept together as we're looking at districts. Mm. Why is redistricting necessary? You know, think about your own neighborhood and how much has changed. And um, then take that to the county level and the state level and the national level. Now, people move they come into the state, they leave the state. And as those changes happen, priorities change. And also we need to remember that we are a graying state. So older people pass away and then we have new births. So there's a lot of changes that take place. And the census allows us to to really get a snapshot at a point in time, every 10 years of where people are. And tell us more about redistricting in general. I mean, why is it important and what issues does it uh, particularly aim to address? I'm really proud to be a Californian because we have an independent redistricting commission, which means that we've taken the politics out of redistricting. And most states still, to this day, it's really the legislature that draws the lines, meaning they get to choose who they're going to represent. Our process, our redistricting process, is focused on hearing from the community as well as the census data. And we really want to take into account um, the Voters' Rights Act to make sure that those communities who've been underrepresented in the past have equal opportunity to elect the representatives that they want. Redistricting is important because who you vote for represents your issues and represents you. And it's also an allocation of budgets. The one thing I really appreciate about our redistricting efforts is that it's an open process. We will be having public meetings. As I said earlier, the legislature isn't involved. This is about 14 individual citizens of California working together you know, open door in the public, nothing's done behind closed doors, and everybody gets a say. And as you mentioned, in other states, the the issue of congressional districts and how they're drawn is a source of much debate, as the drawing of, of these lines is oftentimes greatly politically motivated and designed to tilt the balance of political power in a given region to one political party. What steps does the California Commission take to avoid that? Well, first, we start with the Independent Redistricting Commission. So the 14 individuals who are on the commission, my colleagues, uh, were selected from a pool of 20,000 Californians who applied. Yeah, they're constantly looking at creating a diverse pool of people that reflect the political realities of California, as well as professional, geographic, ethnic. We were vetted. As as I explained, the redistricting process is done in public. It's open sessions. Everything is Zoom these days, including our meetings. And so people can watch us and we do accept public comments during our business meetings. And now we're moving into the phase where we're really asking the community to submit their communities of interest, meaning their community maps. We have a tool online on our website, which is We Draw the Lines ca.org. And that tool can walk you through how to define your community, how to tell us why it's important to stay together, as well as draw it. It's a very simple tool. But people can also call in. They can attend one of our public input meetings that we'll be having this summer. 
And then in the fall, when we start our drawing of the lines, those will be open to the public as well. The public can sit in and listen to us go through all the communities of interest we receive, the data, and will hear us kind of really work through some of the hard questions we'll need to be addressing. And finally, when we post final maps, there'll be draft maps and then final maps, the community once again gets to look at them and have a say. All right. I've been speaking with Patricia Sinai, Commissioner of the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having us. A decade after Don't Ask, Don't Tell ended, one of naval aviation's few openly gay pilots is on his way out. The Marine substantiated his claims of harassment after an incident following a West Coast Marine Corps ball. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh tells us why it wasn't enough to save his career. For most of his six years in the Navy, Lieutenant Adam Adomski says he felt supported as an openly gay pilot. He can tell you when that changed. It was in November of 2019. Adomski is a helicopter pilot for a Navy search and rescue squadron. Adomski was invited to a West Coast Marine Corps birthday ball at a local casino. He came back to the hotel room where the Marines had been holding an after party. When I walked into the door, I knew something wasn't right because um, the TV in that suite had been moved like on the pivot um, to face the doorway and I saw my dress whites draped over and around the, uh, the TV and there was hardcore gay porn playing. It didn't feel like a harmless prank. It felt like something else. Some of the other Marines in the squadron wanted to find those responsible. But Adomski says he was getting ready for his first deployment as a pilot. He wanted to shrug it off and let the matter go. But word had spread. I had received numerous calls from people that are in the closet in that squadron, uh, both men and women and, and openly uh, gay service members, um, telling me that they, they are upset and that they don't think the climate is uh, a good climate in that, in that squadron and they, they, they think I should report it. The Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy ended a decade ago, allowing LGBT service members to serve openly. But a study in the Journal of Sexuality Research and Social Policy found 59% of service members still didn't feel comfortable coming out to their peers. Sasha Bookert is a former Marine and an attorney with the civil rights organization Lambda Legal. She says changing the law didn't change the culture. It's one thing to have don't ask, don't tell removed. It's another thing to have a culture where people can feel safe, you know, being who they are and not have to worry about, um, you know, being discriminated against or harassed. Eighteen months after Adomski reported the incident, he still hasn't received final word on his case. His version of events has been substantiated by the squadron commander in charge of the three Marines found culpable. Initially, the squadron commander even offered to pull their pilot's wings for the incident. Adomski thought that was too severe. Um, I want an in-person apology and uh, from, from all three of them. Uh, I, want, I want a meeting to which they're there and I can talk to them. He also wanted something on their permanent record. The incident continued to eat at Adomski. He was in a serious relationship with an Air Force pilot who was talking about coming out of the closet. They broke up after he saw Adomski's experience. I lost a lot. I'm, I'm not unhappy. I no longer feel like I am 
um, an effective uh, leader, an officer, a, a pilot, um, and uh, I don't feel a part of the military anymore. Adamski has been called into the headquarters for Naval Air Command more than once to address his decision to speak publicly about his case. Major Alex Lim, spokesman for the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing, says the Marines initially acted quickly on his complaint. Service member, Marine, sailor in our units are um, treated with, in a culture of dignity and respect, we we want to prohibit uh, any type of activity that where these individuals would be harassed. Adamski stopped logging flight hours as his case dragged on. Last spring, he had a road accident that made it even tougher to qualify to fly. He was given an option as a Navy officer to retire. Adamski took it. In the next couple of months, his six-year career as a Navy pilot will come to an end. But not his quest for some kind of recognition that what happened to him wasn't right. Most people back down because of, of all this hassle, and I, and I won't. I, and I'm not someone that will back down easily. At this point, he says he has nothing left to lose. Steve Walsh, KPBS News. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Authorities are still trying to make sense of last week's deadly shooting that killed one and injured four in San Diego's gas lamp district. As more details emerge, police have said that the weapon used in the incident was a ghost gun, a homemade, untraceable firearm. Recently, San Diego Police Chief David Neslite said San Diego County had seen a 169 percent rise in ghost guns over the past year an increase many in law enforcement say connects to an increase in violent crime. Joining us to discuss the issue is KPBS freelance reporter Alexandra Rangel. Alexandra, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So what can you tell us about ghost guns? Where are they coming from and what kind of problems are they presenting for law enforcement? So a ghost gun is essentially a firearm that's sold in parts they're sold and advertised as these DIY kits that can be put together at home. These kits are 80% complete, and you have to assemble the final 20%. Um, a key selling point is, like you mentioned, that they are not serialized, so they can't be traced back to the buyer or the manufacturer. Um, a traditional firearm requires a serial number. They also require a background check. So what's happening with the rise of these guns Um Law enforcement is basically they're going to these crime scenes and they're finding ghost guns and they're not able to trace them back to the buyer or the manufacturer. So it, it is presenting a problem. And so basically criminals are getting their hands on these guns and they're able to fly in a sense under the under the radar with them. In your story, you point to loopholes in firearm legislation in completely different states as a key factor in the rise of these ghost guns. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so under federal law, an individual building a firearm like these ghost guns um, for personal use, they're not required um, to mark it with a serial number. However, when it comes to different states like California, we have stricter gun laws. Um, in California, if you do have a ghost gun, you buy it 80% complete. But once you build it, once it's 100% complete, you are required to register your gun 
with the Department of Justice. They will give you a unique serial number for your firearm. But most states in the U.S., they don't have the same regulations, of course, as California. It's only a handful of states. As we mentioned earlier, Chief Neslight said they've seen a 169 percent increase in ghost guns across the county. Um, Can you break that number down for us? I mean, are these guns that have actually been seized by SDPD and how many guns does that 169 percent actually represent? I mean, how many ghost guns are we actually talking about here? Yeah, so that's a huge increase, right? 169%. And it's really in the year of 2020. So if we go back to 2019, SDPD seized 78 ghost guns. In 2020, they seized 210 guns, which is where they saw that 169% increase. And so far this year, they actually took out some data. In just these four months, they've seized 111 guns. So Chief Nislight says that basically with the numbers they're starting to see already this year, they're on track to see another increase of ghost guns in, in San Diego County. And an interesting part of this story is that of the 700 ghost guns that were retrieved up in Los Angeles last year, all of them were made from parts built by one single company in Nevada. Tell us more about this. I mean, how is this going unregulated? Yeah, so last year, um, the Los Angeles Police Department recovered 700 ghost guns. All of them were made with parts built by a company in Dayton, Nevada called Polymer 80. According to a city attorney, Mike Fewer, Polymer 80 is one of the nation's largest sellers of these ghost guns. And in LA last year, over 40% of guns recovered were actually ghost guns. So LA is starting to see a huge rise in ghost guns as well. And they're saying that the majority of these guns are coming from Nevada. Basically, this company, Polymer 80, which is in Nevada, they're able to sell guns to California residents. And in Nevada, they don't have that law where you have to register your gun with the DOJ, but in California, you do. Um, But what's happening is people are buying these ghost guns and they're not registering their guns. Once they assemble them 100% complete, they're not registering them with the DOJ. Well, this month, Biden is expected to make a number of executive orders limiting the sale and availability of ghost guns. What are the arguments from gun rights advocates? So one of the executive orders that um, Biden has presented is regulating these ghost guns. He wants these kits to be treated as a firearm, and he wants to require these parts to have serial numbers. Um, And of course, there has already been pushback from gun rights advocates. I mean, for them, it's they feel like it's an infringement on their Second Amendment right. And any sort of gun control that is trying to be pushed out there, they're not in favor of as they believe that more needs to be done to prevent criminals from getting their hands on firearms. So I spoke to the executive director of San Diego County gun owners, Michael Schwartz. And what he told me is he thinks more needs to be done to stop criminals from getting their hands on these ghost guns versus making these what he calls parts or metal parts illegal. And he referenced back to to our laws here in California. We do have stricter gun laws, yet we still have people getting their hands on ghost guns, criminals getting their hands on ghost guns. So he doesn't think more regulations are going to help stop these guns from getting into the hands of criminals. I've been speaking with KPBS freelance reporter Alexandra Rangel. Alexandra, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Mexicali-based post-punk band Silent wrote a new album inspired by the propagation of hate they saw, starting with rhetoric about the U.S.-Mexico wall. The album is called Modern Hate, and KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans brings us the story. Mexicali-based post-punk band Silent's latest album begins with The End, the hypnotic opening track called End. The driving, sizzling bass only has a few seconds to set the dark mood before the guitar kicks in. It's somewhere between a surf rock glissando and a metal screech. Then vocalist Jung Sing takes over. His voice is crystalline and sharp-edged, but still somehow soft. Modern Hate is the sophomore release from Silent, just released on San Diego label 3-1-G. It packs a punch that's as haunting and brooding as it is spitting and incensed. The album title is part homage, part twist, to David Bowie's 1983 anthem, Modern Love. Inspiration first struck on tour when Trump announced he was building the wall. Here's the lead singer for Silent, Young Sing. I remember when I was when I wrote Hands on the Wall, we were on the road in the van and we've been listening to NPR and the statement came on the radio and we, we listened to what he said. And I remember Roto, or, or bass player, was driving. So like, this is crazy. It's like, uh, it's about the wall, man. Everyone in the van was enraged and switched the radio to music, but Singh couldn't let go. He climbed to the back seat, opened his laptop, and began to write Hands on the Wall. The track is 
dark and angry, rooted in the experience of living on the other side of that wall and watching an ancient sort of hate bubble to the surface anew. prompted not just by the wall or toxicity in American immigration politics, but by other places he saw hate. All type of hate is happening everywhere. The Las Vegas mass shooting that would happen shortly after he began writing the album, drug cartel violence in Mexico, racism and white supremacy, or even toxic relationships. One song, A New Slave, sprang from the difficulties of recovering from an abusive, toxic relationship. The track is highly personal to sing. After an 11-year partnership dissolved, he realized he needed to heal before moving on to someone else, or he'd risk looking for the next thing to make him feel that same way. The pandemic slowed things down and caused a temporary closure for the bar Singh owns, Small Bar, in Mexicali. Like most small business owners, he struggled financially trying to keep the business afloat while closed and didn't have U.S. government relief checks or funding to fall back on. On top of this was the psychological struggle that came from the loss of music, whether rehearsing and writing with the band or touring and performing. Their sound hints at acts like Savages, Nick Cave, Editors, or even Depeche Mode, but Silent can't quite be pinned down to comparisons. Singh's voice is emotive and insistent, and despite the darkness and anger in the lyrics, the overall sonic effect takes on a more tragic beauty. Later in the album, Death is Not an Option adds a more classic punk energy. while The Witness draws on the timelessness and theatrics of Darkwave. We have to be more like, like more brutal and, and a little bit more aggressive, but at the same time, try like to sound more mature and my singing tried to improve my singing of, of the this record like and the guitar is more melodic and we tried the, the process to be more like i don't know like more fine or more like elegant but with not losing the strength of the, of the pump you know despite all the fury there's a lot of humanity and a little hope in the common grief the sound is never too much or never relentless, spotlighted by the album's closer, No Heaven. In 
In the final minute, the music cuts out completely while Singh's voice hangs over the silence. It's almost choral with a tremulous vibrato, but also kind of feral. That's KPBS arts editor and producer Julia Dixon-Evans. Modern Hate, the new album by the Mexicali-based band Silent, is out now. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.